0: top of the tuesday morning to you oregon i'm finn jd john fj at offbeatoregon.com and this is the daily offbeat oregon podcast Since it is Tuesday, this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode several years ago. Thanks for downloading, and I sure hope you enjoy it. In a quiet little historical cemetery in the north hills of Corvallis, there's a marble gravestone about the size of a large loaf of bread with a simple and startling message carved upon it. The stone reads, AIM, A-M-E, Slave of Mary and John Porter. There's nothing more. The gravestone has none of the usual information. Ames' dates of birth and death are unknown. Until not too many years ago, information like that was considered unimportant. If Ames' date of death had been listed, though, it would have been within a year or two of 1874, at least ten years after the President of the United States declared her a free woman, and at least five years after the 14th Amendment made slavery unconstitutional. Yet she died as she had lived as a slave, albeit now an illegal one. But then she'd been an illegal ever since she first came to Oregon. Philomath historian May Dash told Corvallis writer Teresa Hogue that Aim was born sometime between 188 and 1818 in Kentucky. At some point when she was a young woman, she was sold to the Johnson and Susan Mulkey family of Missouri. When the Mulkeys came out west on the Oregon Trail in the mid-1840s, they debated about what to do with AIM. At the time, their question of whether slavery would be allowed in Oregon was still unsettled, and if it were settled with a no, they'd lose a valuable piece of personal property. That may sound catty to the modern ear. It's not intended that way. Remember, this was well before slavery was abolished. The Mulkeys were simply products of their time. To play it safe, the Mulkeys decided that they would leave Aim behind with family members in Missouri, where, in any case, she had her own children to look after. Quote, When the start was made, Aim was not to be found, recalled the Mulkeys' granddaughter, Maud Cawthorn-Keedy, in an interview for the WPA Writer's Pod Project in 1939. Nor had she bade them goodbye. It was supposed that she was so sad or overcome with emotion that she could not watch them leave. Not so. At the fourth camp, much to the delight of Grandmother and the children, Aime appeared at the campfire and was helping with supper when Grandfather came to eat. There was nothing to do at this late hour but take her along. Her faithfulness to Grandmother and the children was wonderful. She'd left her own children to follow Miss Susan and the babies. Well, that was one interpretation. Hoag, for one, seems skeptical. Quote, whether it was loyalty or fear of abandonment in a place where her only option was to become another family slave is impossible to tell, she writes dryly. And indeed, Aime had been passed around the Mulgee family quite a bit, and most people she'd stayed with didn't like her. Perhaps she knew that if she stayed back in Missouri with her own children, she'd just be separated from them anyway and sold in the auction block and would end up toiling in a cotton field for the rest of her considerably shortened life. Personal note, if I were making a bet, this last scenario is exactly where I'd be putting my money. It's not in the nature of human mothers to prefer other people's children over their own, and Kitty's blithe assumption that AIM was an exception to this tells us something about the relationships here. The whole thing takes on the appearance of a deep personal tragedy wallpapered over with pictures of Disney princesses. The Little Mermaid comes to mind. Back to our story. Whatever the reason... Aime left her own children behind and came to Oregon with the owner's family. Along the way, her chief tasks were keeping the oxen in line and the children out of trouble. Upon arrival in the Oregon Territory, Aime found herself an outlaw, shielded from a hostile society only by the protection of a respected white family that was itself breaking the law by keeping her. Black people were simply illegal in Oregon at the time, slave or free. They were legally prohibited from coming to the Territory. There was even a lash law according to which African-American folks were to report for a whipping once every six months until such time as they took the hint and left the area. Subtle, huh? The lash law was blithely ignored in Corvallis. Aim continued serving the family, occasionally being lent out to help with the neighbors' chores. Keady said she seemed happy to be there with them, but did she really have a choice? Could she have walked away if she'd wanted to, to claim her freedom? Legally, she certainly could. Keeping her in bondage was a crime, but as a practical matter, the community might not have allowed her to exercise that right. And in any case, she herself was an outlaw, guilty of, quote, being in Oregon while black. What kind of support could she count on? A speedy repatriation to Missouri, most likely, to be handed over once again to the Mulkey family there. She may have made the best of it, but AIM and all other Oregon slaves had been dealt a losing hand. Time passed. Aime got older, and according to Keedy, feistier, although she'd apparently been plenty feisty to start with. Young Mary Mulkey grew up and married John Porter in 1858. Aime became the newlyweds' property. In 1859, Oregon became the only state ever admitted to the Union, with a law on the books excluding black people from living within its borders. So far as we know, though, this had no effect on Aime's status. Nor did the outcome of the Civil War change her life. In the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863, President Lincoln himself declared her a free woman. In 1868, the 14th Amendment made her continued bondage an offense against the U.S. Constitution. Still, she continued to live and work as a domestic slave. But then, by that time, she was probably in her 60s. Too old to go forth and start a new life in free society, she probably counted herself lucky that she was far enough away from Washington, D.C. to continue living as she had lived. Ames' gravestone is a good metaphor for her life. She's buried right next to the family she served, but not among them, on the edge of the plot, closest to the path. Her loaf-shaped marker is much more modest than theirs. It was probably a little controversial to bury her in the family plot at all, But perhaps that controversy is what the family intended. Perhaps the younger porters in this bright new world kept Aim in violation of federal law as a favor done for an old family friend who deserved better than to be thrown away like a worn-out buggy. It's possible. Remember, the people making these decisions were the babies she'd taken care of when she was a young woman. John and Mary died a year or two before Aim did, in 1870 and 1872, respectively. Yet nobody else seems to have taken, quote, ownership, of AIM after their deaths. When she followed, she was buried there next to them, with that grave marker at her head. It's short and disturbing message looking up at the free Oregon sky like a distant accusation. This article was first published on October 17th of 2011, under the headline, For One Oregon Slave, Civil War Didn't End Bondage. Key sources included works by Teresa Hogue, Randall B. Fletcher, and Ancestry.com. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. More info is at our hub page at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulp Lit Productions, a boutique publishing house about which more can be learned at pulp-lit.com. Speaking of which, if you enjoy listening to me, you might check out some of my audiobooks. You can find them most easily with a search for my name on audible.com. Most of them are old pulp stuff, H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Rice Burroughs, etc., but at least two of them are Offbeat Oregon history-type stuff. Check them out if you're so inclined. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details, see offbeatoregon.com slash cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatoregon.com episodes of Offbeat Organ History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now.